2: This is Where We Live, from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Katherine Shen. There's been 78 different legislative proposals since 2021 that are aimed at K-12 curriculum. That's according to PEN America. The Free Speech Organization also refers to those proposals as gag order bills. Connecticut is often seen as a safe haven from these kinds of political or ideological attacks in the classroom. But we've seen a rise in debates over curriculum and book ban requests in our state, too. Several organizations here are working on an educator's Bill of Rights. This is a statewide document they hope will help protect the right to teach in accurate and complex ways without censure or punishment. We'll hear from teachers who drafted the document, but first, Connecticut rolled out a Black and Latino history elective this past school year, which is the first of several recent curricular updates and mandates to go live statewide. And joining us now to share their experiences are Daisha Brabham, a social studies teacher at Windsor High School, and Julian Schaefer, who is a social studies teacher at Danbury High School. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Hi. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, that's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, Julie and Desha, you both piloted this course last year, and Desha, we should also start by congratulating you for winning Windsor Teacher of the Year, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. you. It's nice to uh, start the day off with those uh, kind of positive vibes. So can you tell us how you worked with the curriculum that the state offered? So...
0: When I originally piloted the curriculum, I I tried to kind of stick traditionally with the curriculum that was put out by the State Education Resource Center. Um, But then by the second year, I started to kind of find a rhythm to be able to try to experiment and try new things um, that I thought kind of might meet the interests of the students that I was, um, you know, being able to work with within my classrooms.
2: And Julian, what about you? How would you compare the course, uh, how you taught it in your first year and your second year?
1: Uh, pretty similarly to Daisha, uh, you know, my first year, I wanted to try and stick to the state curriculum document as much as possible. Uh, difficulty that I, and I know a lot of teachers found with that was just the amount of really great information in the document. So as history teachers, we often have to figure out what are we going to include? What are we going to leave out? Uh, and so by the second year, also after some feedback from students in the first go round, uh, a lot of student feedback, uh. Mentioned that they wanted to see black and Latino history uh, kind of intertwined throughout the year rather than, you know, just black history in the first semester and Latino, Latino history in the second. So the this past year, uh, my second year teaching this course, uh, I really kind of, you know, switched back and forth and tried to also bring in points of intersection with black and Latino history. Uh, so I'd say that's one of the biggest kind of changes I made in the second year of doing it.
2: And Daisha, you also found success in combining these two separate semesters, Black and Latino histories. Can you tell us about what that experience was like for you?
0: I think trying that this year was very, very helpful in just being able to, as Julian kind of pointed out, being able to draw those comparisons, but also make room for students who don't exist at kind of that binary. You know, I had a lot of, I had um, some students who identified as Afro-Latino who really wanted their voices and their experiences to be heard and affirmed in the classroom. And so I found a lot of strengthen that, in addition to really pointing to those connections and those areas of cross solidarity. You know, I think one of my favorite units this year was, my, was the activism unit in which students were able to kind of look at the collaborations of the Black Panthers and the Young Lords um, and being able to kind of talk about those um, organizations and how they were able to find strength and commonality with one another, um, but also kind of use that to propel themselves towards social justice. And so I thought, I think that was a very helpful um, framing.
2: And I know this is something that we certainly can talk for days, and I definitely want to dig in deeper in terms of, you know, you finding that connection uh, as a teacher with your students. But I also want to ask Julian, too, because you both have found a lot of success in combining uh, the two different histories. But Julian, you also were able to sort of wove, uh, you know, we wove together Puerto Rican history into one unit as well. So can you talk about that process? Was it similar to the black and Latino units or is it a completely different experience for you?
1: um yeah I mean I I think a lot of what I covered in the class this year was similar to what I'd done the, the previous year uh but then for my for example my unit on uh Puerto Rico uh I you know in the original curriculum document there are a lot of uh you know points about Puerto Rican history uh but they're kind of scattered throughout different units and so I thought it would be more helpful. Uh, Because Puerto Rico, you know, does have a unique history, really has the oldest colony in the world between, uh, you know, colonization under Spain and then really the United States. Um, And so kind of putting that into one big unit where students could see kind of the continuity of the history, uh, how this, uh, you know, colonial or colonization status um, or colony status is really still like impacting Puerto Rico today. So I think by you know bringing together all these different points of Puerto Rican history and putting them into one unit, I think my students ended up getting a much better understanding uh, of the historical and then current issues that Puerto Rico uh, faces and Puerto Ricans face, uh, and the you know and the struggle for justice that they've been uh, engaged in.
2: And this is of course a familiar space for you. You also previously taught an elective on race and ethnicity. So I'm curious to hear, you know, what did this class compare to other history classes that you've taught and how did it inspire the Black and Latino Studies course?
1: Yeah, so around the same time that students around the state were, you know, asking the state legislature for uh, a course on the history of race and racism and that really ended up becoming this Black and Latino Studies course, uh, students in Danbury High School were asking for the same thing, but really at you know, our school level. So uh, working with a few student organizations and other teachers, uh, there was the Black Lives Matter Club and Latino Club and other groups. Um, we had petitioned for and got, with the support from administration to give them credit, uh, You know, a recent ethnicity studies course. Uh, and this was three years before the Black and Latino History course became, uh, you know, a course. And so, for that, I would say the the biggest difference I've noticed um, was that the makeup of that class was uh, very diverse. In Danbury High School, we, you know, do have students from a large number of racial and ethnic backgrounds, uh, and so you know, the I think that. Course was more of a general history of race and racism in the United States, um, versus the Black Latino Studies course is more Black and Latino history. And of course, these conversations of the history of race and racism are, uh, you know, a part of that. Um, but one, you know, it's it's a different class. Uh, it, this this class has become more of, I think, an affinity group uh, for Black and Latino students in the school, which I think has its own value uh, and importance. Uh, But I would definitely say I've noticed uh, who is taking the class is different, and it it does feel like we've got a strong sense of community in this class too. the new black Latino studies class uh, that wasn't quite there in the same way before so that's you know uh, they're different in their own good way good ways
2: and daisha this is also your wheelhouse as well you know you've adapted this course to your classroom and with what julian was just saying in terms of you know the makeup of the classroom is different uh, for you know literal literally every classroom what's your response to what what he just said you know certain courses becoming uh kind of like an affinity group for certain students i
0: definitely would agree i think that this course i think in part because of the curriculum that's being taught and the approach to this course, I do think that this course naturally kind of leans itself into creating that type of atmosphere um, for students to explore and discuss their identities, their experiences, their backgrounds, and think about how that applies to the past and present and future. Um, But I do think that that has been a concern of teachers that I've spoken to of just making sure that we are doing intentional recruitment of students um, from all backgrounds to see the value in being able to take a course like this, because it is valuable for all students to be able to have access to a course um, that discusses this history. Um, And in addition to those larger themes that Julian is pointing to, race, ethnicity, um, etc.
2: And this is something that is valuable for both teachers and students. So how do you think about this course as meeting a need for students?
0: I think the course fits a need for students in that It provides, I think this course provides, as most history courses should, I think this course provides a really good framework for how all history teachers, um, history classes should really be taught, and that it really not only leans into the past, but also really focuses on highlighting real, relevant connections to the present. And so students are able to draw connections between the themes of what they're learning in the class and what they're experiencing on the day-to-day um, and so I think, again, that's why this course is so beneficial for all students, um, in addition to them being able to understand parts of history that oftentimes are not reflected in the U.S. history or the civics or the modern global um, curriculums that, you know, sometimes are um, taught throughout, across the state.
2: And so I feel like what I'm getting out from from what both you and Julian have been saying is there is an interconnectedness in terms of how history is being taught. It's really, it feels like it's very difficult to separate one topic to the other because it's so connected. and And with you know, Daisha, you have a master's in public history. You've also helped with the state's recent development of Indigenous curriculum. So, you know, from your your experience with both in the classroom and outside of it, what opportunities do you see for addressing Black and Latino history or Indigenous history or AAPI history sort of within the, the bounds of a U.S. history course, for example?
0: Yeah, I think that there is an approach in which you can kind of discuss each of those areas. I think that there's an approach that can kind of silo those stories off, right? Where there's an African-American history, there's a Puerto Rican history, there's an LGBTQIA history. Um and I think that that makes sense. It's, but and, I, and you see this also in, even in historiography. You see this in public history sites, right? That there is this kind of separate story. But in reality, all these stories are really converging together, you know, in the same way that I would say that you can't really talk about African-American history without talking about Asian-American history, right? Like there are so many different intersections and different connections that existed throughout the past, you know? So I think that the best way moving forward is for us to find ways to make sure that this becomes just a study of the past, as opposed to just individual um, groups of people. You know, the connection I always make is hip hop, right? You know, I grew up, my dad grew up in New York. And one thing he always highlighted to me is that it just, it wasn't necessarily just an African American thing, like Puerto Rican people had influences in it. Um, Jamaicans like were kind of like the first people to kind of like brought kind of, bring the hip-hop scene to New York. And so those cross-cultural, cross-racial style, cross-cultural products are important explorations for students because they can kind of find themselves, but also find each other in the class as well. Um, So I think that is what I would think we should start moving more towards as opposed to just necessarily focusing on making sure that each group is kind of represented, but more how are we discussing the past from an inclusive lens?
2: Well, I really love that hip hop connection because music, I feel like, is another another language of interconnectedness and talk about history. That's a, that's a whole different series of shows that you're having <laughs> us do here, Daisha. And, and Juliana, we we'll love your thoughts too, you know, talking about the complications of potentially siloing these as separate topics. But obviously from this conversation, we're seeing that they're all so connected. And we know you taught the Black and Latino Studies elective while teaching a history, a U.S. history course uh, during the same year. So what are your thoughts about that, Julian?
1: Right. So I really do try and go into teaching U.S. history often with like uh, an intention to discuss, you know, things like uh, race, class and gender throughout the year. And so if we take my like unit, uh, my unit on World War II in the United States, I, you know, I start by asking the question, was World War II an era of opportunity? Because the often dominant narrative is that, you know, our economy was booming uh at the home front so there's you know many narratives around this idea of like you know it bringing us out of the great bringing us out of the great depression uh, but then we you know really look at a diverse uh you know set of people's experiences during the war and so when we start to talk about you know mexican migrant workers coming to the united states through Br- through the bracero program you know it was really in ways an exploitation of uh and an opportunity for uh, mexican migrant workers Uh, We look at uh, Japanese-American incarceration and the experiences of women in the economy. And so really trying to complicate, uh, you know, students' understanding of this narrative of, you know, opportunity during the war. Uh, And we do that by looking at different people's experiences. And so I think you can really do that for most topics in U.S. history. It's just, again, we need to make those conscious decisions of whose stories do we include and Uh, You know, unfortunately, some things are going to get left out, but we need to uh, be, you know, aware of those decisions that we're making.
2: You've been listening to social studies teacher Desha Brabham and Julian Schaefer, and their students will be joining the conversation after a quick break. And a reminder for our listeners that you, too, can join the conversation. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. We've been talking about a Black and Latino history elective class that was rolled out here in Connecticut over the last school year, and two high school social studies teachers just shared with us their experiences on teaching the class. And now let's hear from two students who took the course this year. Joining me now is Damila Seal. She's a Windsor High School student, as well as Sarai Pichardo, a student at Danbury High School. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you. Hi. Hi. And still with us are their teachers, Daisha Brabham from Windsor High School and Julianne Schaefer from Danbury High School. So, Sarai, I want to start with you. You know, you were in Mr. Schaefer's uh, two classes this year, Black and Latino History and U.S. History. Can you talk to us about your experience with this elective and what made that experience unique? Um, I
3: absolutely adored this class because it was very eye-opening, educational, and engaging. I mean, there w- wasn't a single unit where I wasn't, where I was bored or uninterested because there was so much that we were learning that we kind of were deprived from in other social studies classes prior to this. But it was very cohesive in the way that the curriculum flowed throughout the year, like the way that we mixed both Latin and um, Latino and Black um, history. It was, it was just like eye-opening. I learned a lot more than I thought I would, but, um yeah, it was definitely very engaging through and through from the beginning to the end. Well, I think
2: it's the highest compliment you can give a teacher by describing their course as <laughs> not being bored. <laughs> and Damila, what about you? Do, you know, Did you have a favorite part of the course? Now, what was your experience like?
4: Okay, going to this course, I was very, um, I had to keep an open mind about what I was going to learn. And going in, in the beginning of the year, we started learning about like the different um, racial identities of, like, the Latino community if they wanted to be called, like, Latino, Latin E, Latin X, and this class was very fun, and it was a very good learning opportunity to learn new history outside of, like, the American history of presidency and um, other things.
2: And Damila, you also shared with us a a very specific Christopher Columbus related project that you really enjoyed. Can you walk us through what that exercise was like? How did that work and why did you like it?
4: Okay, so the Christopher Columbus, um, we did a trial and we had four groups of students and each group had a role in the trial. So We had the um, Columbus as one group, Columbus um, men as the other. Then we had the king and the queen, and then we had the system. And as a whole, we had to figure out um, who was the most, um, who was most guilty. But as we were going through and figuring it out, we were all like blaming each other. Because it wasn't one person's fault. And I really enjoyed this because... It shows, it shows you how one system of a country is like so like messed up that it creates so many problems for their citizen. And it's just all about who's like correctly to blame. Because you can't really blame a system because it was created by someone. So that's what I really got from like the trial. And it was a really fun trial too.
2: And I, I don't know if I've ever heard someone describe a trial as being fun to be a part of. What role did you play? And and was there something that really surprised you, Damila?
4: I played the system. So everyone was blaming the system. But I had to defend that because it's like someone created the system. It's not a person. And you have to ha- find a way to blame someone. And what I found out from this is that most students like they thought uh, oh the system was created so you have to blame that person but you have to think about like who created the system and who's higher up and what they were thinking of doing at that time so that's where the king and the queen came in and how they were the one who funded christopher columbus they're the
2: one who created the system so yeah and Sarai, you did this exercise as well. You know, what was your experience like?
3: It made me realize how complex. I mean, the trial in itself was very difficult. Like she, like Damila said, there's there's so much that went into it. And then you can't really just blame one group of people or one system because, like you said, there's people behind it. And I actually just found the paper from when we did this. So I believe I was the Dino you know, people when I was doing this. So it was kind of hard to blame the thaino people, obviously, because they were, you know, the victims and all this. But it was it's very complex. That was one of the main things that I realized throughout this class, that there's so many things that go into our history. And the main thing that I could just think, think about while I was doing this trial was how complex it was. And it was so thought provoking because we were all just sitting there basically arguing with each other, trying to figure out who's more to blame. But we all know that there's so much there's so much to it. There's so much behind behind everything that you can't just blame one group of people but it's very complex and that's what I got from this entire thing is how complex it was and it was a little fun it was very frustrating but definitely a little fun well, um,
2: adding a little frustration yeah. is fun uh, Daisha, i want to bring <laughs> you into this conversation real quick and talk about why is this such a powerful exercise i mean we're here from both ademila and sarai who said it was thought provoking it was it was a lot of blaming it was also very complicated adesha uh, can you talk a little bit about the concept of complicity here
0: yeah i think this was a uh, uh, this is a actually, as, as was mentioned, me and Julian ended up teaching this lesson. Um, this comes from the Zen Education Project, which I definitely recommend for any teachers out there for trying to find curricular resources that help to highlight those kind of bigger themes of accountability, complicity, and really try to... Get students to start questioning their own thought process and how they approach the past. Um, I think this was an awesome exercise in that, as Daniela and Sarah both kind of pointing out, it is kind of our gut reaction to just like who's to blame, who's the most uh, accountable. But then trying to get students to kind of think about what does complicity look like um, in ish um, in times um, in which injustice occurs, um, especially with things when you're thinking about like genocide of Taino people, um, I'll say that what I took the most out of this lesson is how important it is for students to engage in this and how it prepares them for looking at the present. You know, at the same, around the same time that we were engaging in this activity was the same time that the murder of Tyree Nichols had happened. And I was kind of grappling with my response of what I was feeling internally as a Black woman living in America. And this assignment kind of provided a space for me to talk with my students about, you know, who do we blame in this situation? Is it the police? Is it the system of racism? Is it the system of police brutality? Is it the um is it us the taxpayers right like the people who fund this system um you know and just being able to have that opportunity to really grapple and see my students grapple with those questions and to kind of come to their own ideas about what they want to see in the world was just a very powerful experience and probably one of the most powerful experiences of my entire teaching career
2: and that is a powerful thing to experience i think even just as a listener right now learning about this experience and and julie and i also would love to hear your thoughts on this because you often did trials in your class and with what desha is talking about being able to have students engage and grapple with the so many questions that we have just by this like five minutes of conversation. Can you talk about the importance of being able to give students this kind of exercise to really sort of play the role and I guess kind of witness history as they are um, creating history?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think like Sarai, I'm very pleased to say they really captured what I hope my students were going to be taking away from this uh, like lesson, which was not you know, who is the person or the people most to blame, but rather the complexity uh, of, you know, systematic violence and the, um, you know, and I think from there that kind of gives students, I hope that gives students a critical lens for when we're looking at issues today, you know, uh, Desha mentioned police brutality, and then really, you know, just the the system of mass incarceration that that's a, a part of, and, uh, you know, talking about, complicity today, Uh, you know, what are the forces or the interests or the people that are, uh, you know, perpetuating uh, oppressive systems that are causing violence? Uh, And, you know, is it necessarily like individual blame that's going to help us uh, figure out how to dismantle these systems? Or do we need to kind of like step back and uh, take a look at how, uh, maybe different interests are, you know, again, perpetuating injustices or something. Um, I, this, this topic of culpability also makes me think of, uh, you know, when we talk about enslavement in the United States, again, uh, who is complicit in that? And so you have, of course, uh, enslavers themselves, but then what about the blacksmiths in Connecticut, right, that were forging chains and making a living off of that. Uh, you know, and so we I think this idea uh is really applicable uh across time and across issues. Uh and so I, that like idea of complexity um and complicity I, I definitely think are the, the key takeaways here. And I think they uh it's it sounds like the the lesson did a good job of that.
2: And Jillian, think, with what you just said, too, you know, think about how you sort of create a connection between the past and the present. Can you give us a preview of the lesson that you taught on the prison industrial complex? Because you localized this lesson a little.
1: Yeah, so I, I really ended up creating a unit out of it. Um, and there there were several, several different pieces to it, and parts of it were local. Uh, so one of the local aspects was... Looking at the Pentagon's 1033 program where they give surplus military equipment to local police departments. And so we looked at, you know, in Connecticut, what kind of equipment have our police what kind of equipment have our police departments been getting Uh, in Bridgeport? We have a mine resistant, uh, practically a tank. Uh, which is I I live in Bridgeport Uh, in Danbury. I know there are many M16 rifles that the military has given uh, their local police department. And so I kind of created a city council simulation where students were the city councilors and they were being asked, you know, essentially, should the city council of Danbury accept uh, this like free, you know, I'm putting air quotes around it um this free military equipment for our police department and so we really you know we got into a discussion after looking at how this equipment was used in ferguson after the wake of the murder of mike brown um you know what is the actual impact of this equipment in local police departments of militarized policing um and so my students ended up uh you know in their role as city counselors declining the uh equipment from the 1033 program Um, So that was part of this unit on the prison industrial complex. We also, um, you know, looked uh, at the history of policing over time. And so we looked at the relationship of police violence in, you know, what were called race riots uh, in like the 1920s. Um, And then the, you know, connection of police and, uh, you know, racial violence in the 2000s. And so really by looking at this relationship of policing and racial violence, mass racial violence across time, um, I think that gave students this, uh, you know, kind of broad uh, perspective to apply to the the things happening around us. Um, So those were a few of the things that we looked at.
2: And Sarai, how did this class differ from other history classes that you may have taken you Can tell us real quickly about that experience?
3: It was when the way it was taught, it was kind of more like I don't want to say student driven, but there was so many times where Mr. Schaefer would just let us like sit there and talk about whatever the topic was and just try to understand it, put things into perspective. But it was also so, like, the way it was formatted was made so that we could make those connections to modern times. So we would look back at, you know, his, history and things that went down and connected to how it still affects us today and so how it still affects our government today and our are um, the systems. And I, I saw that a lot in the prison industrial conflicts unit because we got to connect so many things from the past to the present and how these things are, how certain systems are inherently racist and things like that. It, it just went into that in so much more detail. And it was so different from other history classes that I've taken. And even though I'm a little biased because I did really enjoy my U.S. history class this year, but that was definitely because Mr. Schaefer was teaching it. Um, it definitely had a lot to do with the way we could connect the history across Latin America and US, and, and U.S., as well as connecting it to modern times that definitely spoke to me. But it was just so driven and like thought provoking for all students. And I feel like most people could agree with me on that.
2: Well, that's like uh, the best kind of bias to have, right? <laughs> I want to ask Amila <laughs> as well that you you helped with a student led teaching for teachers all about teaching race and ethnicity. You know, what was that like for you?
4: It was very um, it was very interesting to see like a different point of view of, t- of students teaching teachers because standing there and creating and creating a presentation for teachers to be engaged with and having like creating scenarios to describe to teachers what goes on in the school community that they don't see but students face every day. So this was a very good learning opportunity for me but also for teachers to see what they could do to better their like classroom or just the
2: class community. And Daisha, we got a minute or two left here. And I want to ask, though, we know Windsor students pushed to offer the course to ninth graders as well. Can you tell us about how you participate in that and why was that so important?
0: Um, I think it's really important just because I think, as has been highlighted, this course is so powerful. And I think that we should be trying to expand this to as many students as possible. Um, in part because of what it represents. Um, It it also was a really, personally, it was a really awesome experience for me just because to see how by the end of the class, at the end of the year, all students were kind of like pushing for this class to be expanded, writing to um, making kind of statements to our local boards of education, um, to be able to see the course be expanded, was just a really inspiring um, thing for myself. Um, But I was really just excited to, I'm excited that the course is going to be now offered to ninth graders as an option um, to take. And I'm also just really excited that we'll continue to see the course evolve as time goes on Um, to hopefully be useful, relevant, and inspiring to students to take what they've learned and then apply it on, you know, in our, when Demila was, um, was a part of that student-led teaching, it was after we had spent almost a month of talking about activism. And so taking her experiences and then charging her up to feel like, hey, I can inform, I can be an active member of my school community um, by advocating for this course to be expanded, or I can advocate with my teachers or share resources on my experiences. I think that's what hopefully the goal of all of our history classes are.
2: You've been listening to Demila Seal and Sarai Pachardo. Thank you both so much for your time. And their social studies teacher, uh, Daisha Brabham and Julian Schaefer, will be staying with us to discuss an Educator's Bill of Rights in Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. An Educator's Bill of Rights was developed by many teacher teachers unions here in Connecticut as well as other organizations. The document calls for learning spaces for students and working spaces for educators that are free from harassment and intimidation. And it underscores the need to teach in accurate and complex ways without censure or punishment. And here to discuss an Educator's Bill of Rights they developed is Daisha Braham She's a social studies teacher at Windsor High School as well as Julian Schaefer, who's a social studies teacher at Danbury High School. So, Desha, I want to jump straight to it. Can you take us back to the beginning? You know, when did the idea for an educator's bill of rights come about?
0: So, the educator bill of rights really came out um, when we began its development about two years ago. Um, and just kind of placing back to that time, um, as was mentioned, kind of in the intro, there. I think there's an understanding or an idea that Connecticut has largely been re- kind of removed from these national discussions on teaching race in the classroom that we see emerging in places like Texas and Florida. Um, but there were some grumblings and some um, kind of, as you mentioned, kind of moves for book bans, um, you know, trying to kind of like influence Board of educations to change curriculum or limit um, Topics on race and um, race and racism in the classroom. And so the Connecticut Educators Association, the AFT, um, the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents, and the Anti-Racist Teaching and Learning Collective came together to draft a document that will hopefully be informative for boards of education to think of ways in which we need to protect teachers, but also with the underlying message that the environment that you create for teachers has a direct tie on students. And so although it's kind of framed as an educator bill of rights, I think in many ways it is a student bill of rights and that students are deserve to have access to this type of education. They've proven time and time again that this is what they want to see happening in the classroom. And so it's the role of school districts it's the role of educators to provide an environment for that learning to occur.
2: And Julian, you were also involved in drafting this document. What are what were some of the essential and important pieces that you found?
1: Yeah, so there, there were a couple, especially that, um, you know, were reasons why I wanted to be a part of this. And uh, for sure, being a teacher of the African-American and Latino studies history course, uh, and then before that, a race and ethnicity studies course, uh, you know, I, I have, of course, seen the backlash against, uh, you know, teaching about race and racism uh, in schools, uh, among, you know, other uh, kind of backlashes and for you know living in connecticut again i think they should mention that we often think that we're kind of insulated from these backlashes but uh it's you know one not necessarily the case uh and then two still important to be proactive about uh you know making sure that we protect any gains that we've made and being uh you know forward thinking about teaching about uh race racism um you know gender sexuality and all those things in our classrooms and so for me uh just this kind of like central concept of being able to you know teach with the truth and uh teach to these topics was a reason why i supported this educators bill of rights um and agree with daisha wholeheartedly that you know an educators bill of rights is going to be benefiting everyone in our schools and really mostly the students um, you know, if we are not able to teach with the truth, then these engaging classes and lessons that, uh, you know, we've been putting together for our students uh, may not be hitting it as hard if we feel this chilling effect that, you know, I need to avoid, um, you know, topics about race because I feel like there might be a backlash against me and I might, you know, lose my job. Um, and so I think, again, being proactive about that is important. Um, also, in my district, I'd mentioned I, I used to teach uh, before black and Latino studies, a race and ethnicity studies class. Uh, and I do know, I'm not exactly sure of the level of complaints against the course, but complaints did happen. Uh, and so uh, eventually, and I think there were a couple factors that went into it, um, all that really relate back to this Bill of Rights. But when the black and Latino studies course came out, you know, the decision was made to cut the race and ethnicity studies course. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if part of that had to do with, you know, kind of being able to cover uh, saying, you know, this uh, black and Latino studies course is a statewide course. And therefore, you know, like the school, you can't really blame the school for it. Um, You know, it's it's possible also, though, to give credit to my admins, they were, you know, uh, happy to have a race and ethnicity studies course. And so for us, too, it may have just been, you know, a lack of resources in our school district, you know, we can't offer this many electives because we don't have enough money for enough teachers. And that goes back to equitable resources, which is another part of this educators bill of rights, you know, that all schools, uh, regardless of zip code should be able to have, you know, opportunities for their students and their staff. And so really, this is about creating quality education across the state for our students. Uh, and, you know, teachers, you know, we, we want what's best for our kids. And so I think this bill of rights helps us Uh, can hopefully help us uh, achieve that.
2: And and Deisha, I would love for you to respond real quickly to what Julian just said. You know, do you echo a lot of his sentiments and what has happened in the district? For sure, for
0: sure. And I think, you know, when we think about of builders, I think people's gut reaction is kind of like, you know, this is a document that's supposed to protect teachers. Like, you know, in many ways, I think when people might hear that, they might think, oh, this is a document trying to protect teachers from students or protects teachers from stakeholders, you know, parents, right? But in reality, it's not just that. It's it's about how what vision do we have for our schools and what role do educators play in that and how can we as districts or we as stakeholders because we're all stakeholders in education it's a it's a collective good that we are investing in when we're investing in our youth how can we create the best environments for them. You know, this uh, uh, we've talked about this with the anti-racist teaching and learning collective, like, no, we don't necessarily have book bans or widespread book bans in Connecticut. But if our schools don't have librarians, right, because they don't have funding, then in reality, it's a, we're creating that same detrimental impact and that students are not having access to this information. They're not having access to education that fits their needs. And so, this is the reason why an educator bill of rights or having that language is important for our districts and i want all i think that's important for the community to know is that in reality education is a collective effort we're all kind of pouring into these systems and so we need to make sure that our investments are being protected um and that we'll all see the benefits of that as these students um progress
2: And a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation to talk about this topic, 888-720-9677. And joining us now by phone is State Representative Christine Palm, who has been involved in this process. Representative Palm, welcome to the show.
5: Good morning. Glad to be here.
2: And you have forwarded an unrelated teacher's bill of rights this session, actually, and we only have a couple of minutes. But can you tell us real quickly about it?
5: Yes, uh, it is actually related. I Not only do I agree with everything your learned guests have said, but I would like to see it put into state statute. I would like to put the, the force of law behind what they are doing, because unfortunately there are hate groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center here in Connecticut, that go under the guise of parent rights groups, and they are really, in their foundation, racist, sexist, misogynist, climate deniers. And I think that unless we have the force of law behind statute that says you may not harass a teacher for teaching what is pedagogically sound and important, you know, then then people will continue to get away with it. So I'd love to take, I'd love to work with your guests and make their ideas into a bill that I'm already working on for next year, because I think we really need to have it be in our statute.
2: And can you really quickly tell us about the bill that you introduced?
5: Yes, it was essentially what they've said. It said you cannot ban books that are pedagogically sound. You cannot harass a teacher for teaching uh, what that teacher is trained to do, uh, and that includes slavery as part of U.S. history. That includes the man-made nature of climate chaos. Uh, it includes the history of LGBTQ studies, all these uh, Latino history. The things that we have put into statute over the years as electives, I personally think they should be mandatory, because my fear is that we're going to end up preaching to the choir, you know, that, that, that the kids who, who are gay are going to take the history of, of the LGBT movement. Kids of color are going to gravitate toward that. It's, I want to thank
2: you so much, Representative Palm, for taking the time. To-
5: it's important oh. for white kids to learn that history especially. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much for your time, Representative Palm. And we only have a couple of minutes left, Daisha, but I would love to get your response to what Representative Palm has to say. And, uh, yeah, what, what is your perspective on her experience?
0: Yeah, I, I would echo everything that she's saying. You know, I think Again, when we're thinking if we're thinking about like students kind of being siloed off, right? You know, like, oh, we're all on all these different education tracks as opposed to this is really a collect like, as I as I keep saying, it's a collective effort. School is collective, it's collaborative. And so we need to work together to be able to again create the environments that I want for Demila and Sarai to continue to have in their school systems, and that I want all students to have access to. Um, and I think again. W- we're again framing it again it's an educator bill of rights that is trying to make sure that we're protecting student experiences um so that's what i would say back to that and i think again the more we work together the more we'll be able to see more of this change or continue to see more of this change across connecticut
2: and julian would also love your response to what representative palm has to say and what are your thoughts about the bill itself
1: uh yeah i mean absolutely i think this bill of rights is necessary i think considering the fact that we are living in you know this uh kind of backlash against teaching about things like race class gender sexuality uh we need to make sure teachers are protected and then you know a a bill of rights from the state i think would also kind of have the reverse effect of this chilling effect that this backlash might be having right uh, so if the state is kind of coming out and saying, you know, teachers, you have like the, you know, the backing of uh, of law of the state to go ahead and teach the truth, teach these subjects, uh, you know, uh, to the, you know, uh, with, with justice, essentially, um, then I think teachers will be much more, uh, feel much more supported to be able to do these kinds of things. And I, I think our students deserve that.
2: And Daisha, we got about a minute left, but in lieu of Representative Palms legislation, where does the Educators Bill of Rights that you develop stand? Do you have a status for us?
0: Yes, we're really excited. The document is going to be widely readily available um, this fall. Um, We're hoping on kind of developing um, a kind of proper rollout of kind of this document, but also having students kind of share their experiences. I think what we've kind of echoed throughout this time is just that you know, oftentimes these efforts are often kind of seen as ways to protect students, but I think that what's been shown in the um, in the on um, the students from the students' perspective, me and Julian's perspective, is that what we're really just asking to do is to provide students a, a place to really process the world that they live in. Um, And so if you're not allowing all students that we all live in, and so if we're not protecting or providing an environment for that, then in reality, we're failing students and it really is nothing short of educational malpractice. And so um, that's what I would say. And I'm really excited to see more efforts like this evolve across the state.
2: And you've been listening to social studies teachers, Daisha Brabham and Julian Schaefer. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning and helping us understand uh, the courses better.
1: Yeah,
2: Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.